This is an echo from the past, a rerun if you will. In this way, new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. This one was released on the 13th of August 2014 and this is episode 6. This episode features an audio odyssey narrated by Barack Obama about a dog-headed demigod who rebuilds the world after it's been destroyed. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 6 of Natural Born Alchemist. And my name is Alex and I'll be your host. In the last episode, episode 5, I had a chat with Dan Warren, evolutionary ecologist and musician. And the reason I mention this is because uh, this episode will be dedicated to one of his solo albums, which I'm going to play from beginning to end. But it's not music, it's actually a story. And it's read by uh, President Obama, if you could believe it. And it's called Son of Strelka, Son of God. But before I play this album for you, uh, let's have Dan Warren himself explain a little bit about it. So where this came from initially was um, I was actually, so I was uh, on one of my trips for my research, I was going to uh, Curacao which is in the Caribbean. Um, and so I was listening to Obama's autobiography, uh, Dreams for My Father, that, he, that which he narrates. And uh, this is before he was in office. I think this is 2006, 2007, something like that. So I think around the time of the, we're heading into the primary. And I was just trying to sort of learn a bit about who this guy was. And I really liked the way he speaks. Um, and I, I've, I've always liked doing sort of text manipulation, like taking spoken word stuff and chopping it and, and redistributing it so it um, says something it didn't say before. And Obama speaks in a way that's actually really good for that. So, like, I, I don't actually. You can hear me now. Like, I, I will say 20 words together without a whole bunch of pause between them. But Obama tends to say one little phrase and then another little phrase and in another little phrase. So things are chopped apart and naturally the way he speaks in these sort of four to 10 word subsets. And I started listening to it like, this guy's got a perfect rhythm for sort of restructuring what he's saying to say something else. And then he also, so he had a very interesting childhood and um, he has this, he was talking a lot about animals and things in his autobiography and different gods and stuff like that. And so I just started listening to it in this kind of like, I could rearrange this to do something else entirely. And so I kind of started playing around with taking out little chunks of, uh, uh, of that book, like four to 10 word, or actually one to 10 word, like little phrases and rearranging them. And it just sort of blew up into this thing where I, at the end of it, uh, made it tell a, a, about a 30-minute story that's um, completely different from, from the original content. It's about a dog-headed demigod who rebuilds the world after it's destroyed. Um, and then I set it to music. And actually, three of the nine chapters of it, I, I have friends to illustrate or animate. Um, 
I'd still like to get the rest of those done at, at some point, but yeah. So I, I just did this. This is one of those, when I was saying earlier that, uh, um, uh, there, there are like, like not having to make money off of my music freed me up to do things that are very odd. This was actually very specifically what I had in mind because I didn't know that anyone would care about this, but me, but also it was, um, just a massive exercise in potentially copyright violation. I mean, it's all protected under free use, but at the same time, or sorry, fair use. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't, I wanted to give this thing away for free, just given what it was. And so not having to make a living off my music kind of gave me the freedom to spend years putting this thing together and then just kick it out the door for free. I'm left mostly with images that appear and die off in my mind like distant sounds. Sacred stories. Stories of Genesis and the tree where man was born, starting with my father. His character would have been fully formed, I think, his restlessness. He seemed to inhabit a world of hard surfaces, without much attention to comfort or detail. Confused and alone, bitter in his solitude, his eyes searching an empty sky above white earth. Maybe that's what I want out of life, he said, pointing upward. And then he proceeded to climb, like a salmon swimming blindly upstream toward the site of his own conception. He straightened his back, looking out at the horizon until he could see it curve and smelling the sultry scented air. He hadn't created it. But he was smart, and his knowledge of the world seemed inexhaustible. He spoke of the wild animals that still roamed the plains, enchanted names, his large hands outstretched to direct attention. And then, they seemed to be everywhere, for whenever he spoke, something unexpected happened. Black trees, two birds of paradise, an ape chickens and ducks running every which way, and finally two baby crocodiles. They had a strange, unnatural pallor. They smelled of new leather. Suddenly, he lets out a quick shout. A monkey! It landed with a thud, then it grew completely still. <laughs> Damn, he said, shaking his head in disgust. Suddenly, the whole thing seemed so fragile in retrospect, so haphazard, but the results were irreversible. A bit embarrassed by his own impulsiveness, he is careful to end on a happy note. Romantic images, set against scenic green hills, even love and light and hope. He whispered the word. And then he was gone. The lush sound was rising, a sound that seemed to have always been there, like the voice of a dream, barely a whisper.
Then, abruptly, the thump of drums. They didn't talk much, these men. Theirs were the faces of American Gothic, their eyes squinting at the sun-baked flinty life that stretched out before them as they wandered barefoot through their barren, cracked fields. Well past midnight, they chanted and stomped around a fire. As the night wore on, something unexpected happened, something volatile. They whispered now, not words to hide behind, but words that could carry a message, the drive for something better, and the pull of respectability. People began to spend more time inside. They bought a house and found themselves bridge partners. They did so with some measure of satisfaction. The truth is that they were more than satisfied. They were relieved. These men knew the country, though. Their toes dug into the ground, brown and green uninterrupted. Their laughter spoke of freedom. Behind them, a faith that rational, thoughtful people could shape their own destiny and have all the opportunities and space to breathe and individualism and economic development. And the city turned monochrome and murmured with activity. Then the buildings grew taller, a nation busy developing itself between the modern and the ancient and asking no favors. Then, a more demanding impulse, a reflection of the simple fantasies that had been forbidden, a more expensive restaurant, a finer suit of clothes, a more exclusive night spot, a more beautiful woman, a more potent high. There seemed no constraints on the originality of lifestyles or the manufacture of desire. The ascendance of free markets and liberal democracy and subdivisions marching relentlessly into every fold of Green Hill, the city lights reflected against the clouds. They grew inward, themselves spurred on by their own fears of inconsequence, always searching for that new start, becoming wealthy men. And their faith had been rewarded, a recognition of accomplishment that frees the spirit, a home, a family, a respectable life, and a booming stock market, and a Sunday matinee, and a gray clip on tie, the pure and heady breeze of privilege, and freedom to be carried off into peaceful dreams. At the point where my own memories begin, I felt a hard knock to the jaw. My head flashed with a dull, steady throb, and I wobbled to regain my composure. I took my first tentative steps with my eyes closed, and my mother's eyes shone with tears. Perhaps she blamed herself. They had poured all their lingering hopes into my success. In return, I occupied the place where their dreams had been. That was all. I was different, after all, potentially suspect. A big yellow dog with a baleful howl, with the body of a man and well-defined thoughts. Tough. Unpredictable, ugly, a radiation victim maybe. Whatever the reason, I knew only that it was too late for explanations. I went into the bathroom and stood in front of the mirror, naked, and wondered if something was wrong with me. I wonder sometimes how long I might have stayed there in painful silence, trying to reconcile the world as I had found it with the terms of my birth. You have me to thank for your eyebrows, she said 
But your brains, your character, I know neither their origins nor their consequences. If you want to grow into a human being, she said firmly, it was a matter of taking life on its own terms. My mother's chin began to tremble, and she pulled me into a long hug that made me feel very brave. She began to cry. I told her there would be other times for us to see each other. She shook her head quickly. No, it's a harder choice than that, she said, and she bit down on her lip. I still trusted my mother's love, but from that day forward, I understood. I realized that I was to live with strangers, and my true life lay elsewhere. I listened to crickets chirp under the moonlight until she disappeared from sight, walking down an empty road. I left after that, uncertain of direction and desperate to prove my place in the world. And at this point, the story quickens in my mind. The months passed at a breathless pace, like one of those old movies that show a wall calendar's pages peeled back faster and faster by invisible hands. Eventually, a year passes and you know you feel differently, but you're not sure why or how. But as the months passed, I saw what all children must see at some point if they are to grow up. The corruption, the anguish and the fear, the stench, the toxins, the empty, uninhabited landscape, the consequences of a malnourished world. In every American town in those years before the war, all I'd heard were complaints, stories of hardship and migration, stories full of terror and blind hunger and suspicion and collective decline. There was nothing definite I could point to, but something was different about what I was hearing now. Beneath the hum, the motion, I was seeing the steady fracturing of the world taking place. Then, abruptly, the horn sounded. The drumbeat of war. casting squat shadows on the asphalt. A march of children no older than me. There were thousands of them, all ready to tell their stories of an evil spirit brought in by the wind. The children were chanting in a high-pitched, alternating rhythm, and a small boy came up beside me holding a dragonfly and a long knife in his right hand. 
After a few minutes, he stopped and held his palm up in front of my nose. Look, he said. I cut myself. It helps me understand how people learn to hate and how we might get things back on track. I started to step forward to get a closer look and silently examined the wound. One day soon, he promised, when it became clear that the tide of pain was endless, our true selves would be found wanting. Having too many quarrels with God. The chants grew louder as more kids circled around us. And suddenly his slender body was swaying back and forth like a great pumping heart. I say there's a struggle going on, he shouted. A struggle that demands we choose sides. All I'm saying is that right now you're on the wrong side of the battle. You've lost your way, brother. I watched as the circle grew smaller, the contortions of rage and disgust on the children's faces, as their bodies expelled God's unintelligible tongue. I decided I'd seen enough. Leave me alone, I shouted. The voices stopped. The streets were silent. And I knew at that moment that a line had been crossed. You don't understand, he said. And he shook his head and said he was sorry he had told me. For I don't know how long I just stood there, the sun in my eyes, feeling slightly dizzy. A spotted, mangy cat ran through the weeds. And then, the world fractured. Blood shot out in a long crimson ribbon and swept as high as my waist. As in a dream, I had no voice for my newfound fear. I took a step back and saw a big hairy creature with a small flat head beating its wings hard against the ground, poised to leap into the sky as puny traffic swirled around its feet. I'm sorry, who'd you say you were? He asked. I thought for a moment. My stomach nodded. I had been around long enough to know such things were important. Stanley Steamer, I shouted. For Christ's sake, Stanley, he said. You want to keep moving? And broke into a breathless run. I didn't answer. I decided to stay where I was. And then, the slow motion cascade of towers crumbling into themselves, the sun bright as a furnace, the trembling blue plain of the Pacific swelling the rivers and fields until the streets gushed with water. And when the disorder spills out of its prescribed confines, the buildings and roads and faces of Nairobi, Bali, Manhattan, lifeless on the grass.
the side of the road, inner city mothers, corn and bean farmers, their heads toward the sky, their mouths wrapped with handkerchiefs to warm the exhaust. Behind them, the brown earth dipped into a smoldering dump. A distant world of horse whips and flames, the ash-covered figures wandering the streets, unsmiling and dressed in horse wool until they disappeared down the dirt road beyond. I raised my arms to demand some explanation, but something held me back. There was no point in disturbing them with questions they couldn't answer. I become troubled by questions. Who was I? Why did an omnipotent God cause such grief? Whatever the reason, the tortoise of Hindu legend that floated in space smiled, brim had cocked back on his head, and offered his unvarnished assessment. It had nothing to do with good or bad, he explained. It was this desire of his to obliterate the past. That's all? I asked him. He glanced down, surprised by the question. Yes, that's all. For the first time in many years, he said, I was filled with hope and the potential for unblinking cruelty. Gosh, I felt like such an adult, he said. took a jug full of water and sat down near the crocodile pond. Him in baggy pants and a starched undershirt, sipping whiskey and cleaning his teeth with the cellophane from his cigarette pack, both more and less than a man. How could America send men into space, he said, pointing upward, where fear and lack of imagination choke your dreams, men prone, in the end, to disappointment. He turned to me and said, it was a particular brand of arrogance. Just a matter of time, and the worlds that they thought they'd left behind reclaimed each of them. Each man finally forced to withdraw and quickly burn out, tumbling against hard earth. I'd asked them once what motivated them to do what they did, he said. They told me, we don't know yet. Stupid motherfuckers. felt silent, and I watched him out of the corner of my eye. Later, we walked through bone-chilling rains to see the great bronze Buddha at Kamakura. He was very gracious. He wore a blue double-breasted suit and a large gold cross against his scarlet tie. He smelled of aftershave and his starched collar cut hard into his neck. An American flag draped down in rich folds from the pole beside his desk. He reached out and offered a firm handshake and was sorry about how badly things had turned out. Was it bloody? He asked. I slumped forward, barely nodding. Have you ever seen a man killed? I asked him, my voice choking with aggrievement. 
He nodded his head. Feels like shit, huh? He said. He started to laugh. What's so funny, I asked. I felt my face and neck get hot. It wasn't fair, I said. What have we ever done to be treated so mean? It's not about you, he said finally, rising to his feet. Anyway, it's just the end of the world, and war and riot and famine were nothing more than temporary setbacks. It's really no big deal. I wasn't amused. I saw a group of children, I said, standing up. They had poured all their lingering hopes into my success. Now, they saw no more destinations to hope for. The children could no longer contain themselves, and they die between humiliation and untrammeled fury, I shouted, making him feel its weight. And whose fault is that, I said. Is that what you're worried about? He asked. Or was it because deep down you imagined a godless universe? He spit out the words as if they were unclean. He sipped from his coffee. I began to suspect that he wasn't as cynical as he liked to make out. I tried, he said finally, his eyes shining as if he were about to cry, and I could hear the desperation creeping out of his voice. I can't. This confidence in the possibility of remaking the world from whole cloth is inadequate to the task. You see? I tried. I didn't answer. It didn't, couldn't end there, I thought to myself. I stood up and left the room. Suddenly, I remembered the power of my father's words to transform. His repeated acts of creation spoke to me. A queer notion suddenly sprang into my head. I would follow his example. If I could just find the right words, I had thought to myself. I raised my arms, but still said nothing. I was worried at first that my vision was somehow incomplete. Without absolute concentration, one could easily slip, and the words that I spoke would seem awkward and false. And those same words could serve as the centerpiece of a blind and ugly corner turned. It required faith. Finally, I figured I was ready. A word, a shout, a glance, a touch. And beneath the words, an image I could alter on a whim a vision that filled me with longing, the promise of another life. As the words tumbled out of my mouth, the world in which I spent those difficult times was all but extinguished. In these new stories, things would be changing, dramatically, decisively. The storyline was simple. The North Shore's thunderous waves crumbling as if in a slow motion reel. The moss-covered cliffs, 
the stew of voices bubbling up in laughter around a fire under great trunk trees. The love of someone who knows your life in the round, a love that will survive disappointment. A house I had never known that expressed the lingering idea of home. Those were the places to start. A part of me really began to believe the story and felt vaguely reassured. I paused, not sure if I should go on. I took on the temperament, if not the convictions, of a street corner preacher and read the names of those who had passed away that week, trying to summon the dead. Suddenly, without any warning, people actually showed up. There were thousands of them. All the quiet terror and open wounds of the week drained away in tears and shouts of gratitude and everyone began to smile. Now, rhythm quickened. Things got complicated. The beauty, the filth, the noise, and the excess, I discovered that I couldn't escape it if I tried. Cars, motorcycles, tricycle rickshaws, buses, and jitneys filled twice to the capacity. The square-jawed men in fast cars, the Marxist professors and structural feminists and punk rock performance poets, tall, unsmiling men in suits and ties and mud-cloth poofies, slender models in the fashion magazines, all jostling to be heard. All of it dazzled my senses, like the electricity of an approaching storm. When I was finished, it was a gorgeous day, almost ridiculous in its ordinariness. quiet, waiting for my father. Counting on him to ease my passage through unfamiliar terrain. Eventually, a tall, pecan-colored man came up and put a hand on my shoulder. Stand the man. I nodded. His appearance didn't inspire much confidence. The fantasy of my father, strong as a hundred men, was all but extinguished. But I would never admit that to him. Where did your faith come from? He asked me. I had faith in myself, I said finally. All my life, I had carried a single image of my father, the man in my mother's stories. Whatever I do, it seems, I won't do much worse than he did. He grinned and slapped me on the back, and we laughed and laughed as we looked at each other, and he grudgingly agreed. The only reason I'm still around is that nobody's willing to replace me, he said. I was worried at first, I said. Now, I can see that my choices were never truly mine alone. I'd be repeating a pattern that had been set in motion centuries before. Yeah, well, it was in the genes, he said. I understood. We each remained locked in our own memories. 
Finally, I asked him, Who was I? I don't know, he said. A figure of random authority. A collection of grievances. Or maybe a boy who radiated like the sun. The promise of something new and important. Which would you rather be? You see, your character is also a construct. Your ideas about yourself are finally transformed into something firmer. We ended up spending the afternoon together, talking and drinking coffee. Eventually, the conversation stopped. Before my eyes, he grew small, his bones stiffened and hair began to gray, and I saw now that he was shaking. Control the decay, I said. I had so much left to say. You don't understand, he said. I can't. Later, lying in bed, he spoke of a wish he'd once had, his gift to me, the mother who had gone away. The room fell quiet. Suddenly, her voice like the voice of a dream. She was laughing brightly, a round, full sound from deep in her belly. We looked in the direction of the sound, and I remained speechless for a moment. My mother laughed once more, and I quickly followed suit. And she laughed, and I laughed, and we stood suspended. I better be going, he said, and his solemn face spread into a silly grin, his head back, with a gaping hole where his nose should have been. Now he was dead, soon turned to dust. My mother sighed. I asked her what she was thinking about, and she smiled softly. An infinite number of chance meetings, the role of luck in the world, without a script or plot that might insist on progression. It was only now that I began to grasp the almost mathematical precision, she said. It's beautiful. Now that he was gone, I said, I can do whatever I damn well please, for I now have a place in the world. She was laughing brightly, so certain in her son's destiny. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, the anguish and the fear had slowly drained away. I felt safe. My eyes kept closing every five minutes. And before I knew it, I had fallen asleep. When I woke up the next morning, it seemed like the most beautiful day of my life. Yeah.